Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby. And welcome to this week's Telecast. On this week's show, my guests are Mark Lauber, Vice President of International Co-Productions and Acquisitions at Lionsgate, and Eric Barmack, former head of International Originals at Netflix, and now CEO and founder of Wild Sheep Content. TBI's Richard Middleton is back, and he talks us through the latest news on the TV industry executive merry-go-round in Movers and Shakers. And as the nights draw in and lockdown begins to bite, we take a breather with career coach and well-being expert, Tracy Forsyth. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. So for our main interview on this week's show, I'm delighted to welcome two senior US TV executives, Mark Lauber and Eric Barmack. Mark is an award-winning producer, as well as being one of the industry's most experienced international content production acquisition, format, and programming execs. He consults for Lionsgate Television as their SVP of international co-productions and acquisitions, overseeing shows such as Motherland, The Goes Wrong Show, and Viaplay's latest drama, Cold Courage. He also works with Lionsgate's platform Stars on their acquisitions, sourcing investment opportunities, co-production and development activities, and partnering with established UK production companies such as Full Well 73, 11 Films, and New Pictures. Mark's also consulted for clients such as Viceland UK, the United Arab Emirates Image Nation, and Fox on their format production of Prison Break in Egypt, as well as Ebony Life TV in Nigeria. And Eric Barmack has worked in TV production, distribution, and digital media development for over 20 years. He's the founder of Wild Sheep Content, a company focused on international TV series with a half dozen projects in development at five different networks or platforms. Prior to Wild Sheep, he served in a variety of senior exec roles at Netflix, focusing on the production and distribution of international content, including La Casa del Papel, also known as Money Heist, Germany's Dark and India's Sacred Games, during his time as VP of International Originals. In addition, 
He's helped shape Netflix's original and first-run strategies for kids' content, independent film, anime, and other genres. So welcome to the show, Mark and Eric. Hi there. Hey, Justin. Two Americans in a very big week for America. Indeed. We're just trying to survive. Mark, coming to you first, you're at Lionsgate and you're working on a whole load of scripted projects. Can you take us through exactly what you're working on and and how are you finding life at the moment? Yeah, like everyone, I'm sure. Um, We've had the same challenges over the last six months, but um, thankfully, production is back uh, up, not without its continual challenges and anxiety for me and others, but... um, Back going. So we had a show for stars that shut down right before um, uh, the lockdown, uh, the Girlfriend Experience season three that was meant to shoot in London. And as soon as we could get back, it came back and we shot in London and we finished production on that. So it's back to America for post. We had another show, a drama for BBC called The Pact uh, out in Wales that again shot, shut down uh, before it started production, right before the lockdown, it's back, and we're about two thirds of the way through the production schedule. And so far, everything is great out in Cardiff and around. Uh, we are about a third of the way through Motherland season three, the comedy uh, from Sharon Horgan's company that we do with BBC and Merman, um, and that's shooting here in West London. And we just uh, finished the first taping, the first episode of the second season of a show called The Goes Wrong Show uh, for BBC One. And this is the Christmas special. So we just taped that last week. And uh, we've got five more episodes to go. So it's busy. We've got three shows in production right now in London, or in the UK, I should say. And since the recent lockdown that we have here in the UK that came in a few days ago, has that caused you any additional challenges on all of those productions? No, not necessarily. I think we were we were planning ahead, and I think a lot of people assumed there would be some short or longer version of a lockdown. Um, Wales and other regions said that filming and television were essential work and would continue as long as they followed the protocols. I think we assumed and believed the same would happen in England, and it has. So filming, uh, television or film, uh, essential work has continued. And we've been, knock on a lot of wood, really fortunate that we've not had a positive test that shut down any of our productions for a day or a week or longer yet. So um, everybody's following closely the protocols. Um, I certainly visit far, far, far less than I would in a typical production and uh, am watching from afar. It must be challenging, right? If you're used to being quite hands-on from an executive producer perspective, And now, and I think many people in the industry must be finding this, that they can't be on on set. They can't be there where production's happening as much as they're used to be. So that that must bring its own sort of challenges and anxieties to a certain extent. Yes and no. I think, you know, as technology has evolved, we've been able to manage things remotely from smartphones, getting emails and FaceTimes and all of those kinds of things and WhatsApp to the technology that allows us to securely see what's happening on set if we want, or rather to watch dailies and selects and assemblies very soon after they're received. Uh, So in a lot of ways, no, I I, I miss the collegiality uh, of having a cup of coffee and saying hello and um, 
communing with everyone, but uh, if you're really not needed, then there's no reason to be there. And so, um, you know, everything to maintain the security and the safety of our filming bubble, we are doing and following the government's protocols, the union's protocols, our own protocols, the insurance company's protocols, everything you can imagine to keep everyone safe and uh, to keep these productions on track. I mean, it must have been a huge challenge for Lionsgate over the last few months. And it's all changed over there right now, obviously, with Nicola Piercy announcing that she's going to be moving on, who's the president of the UK and Europe. I guess, you know, you're looking forward to 2021 and kind of a, a, a fresh start into the new year. Look, looking backwards, I, I think people imagined the worst case scenarios financially and otherwise. And, and fortunately, I think those worst case scenarios have not come to pass. But like every studio, every distributor, every company, we're all reimagining the future. And the future means change, whether that's personnel, whether that's the way we go about doing our business, whether that's the genres potentially that we're in or focused on. I think every company is looking at how do we survive and thrive for the future and uh, where do we pivot? So we've done that. And um, yeah, I, I, it's not been the easiest year, but I'm glad to say, you know, we're making shows, um, we're selling those shows, and we've got an active slate for the future. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the next year. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see my colleagues, both at Lionsgate and, and outside, managing through this. But I do have, you know, ex-colleagues and friends and peers who are in a changing situation. So there's empathy for everybody. Eric, coming to you, uh, welcome to the show. You're about a year into the life of wild sheep content. What a year that must have been. How has COVID-19 shaped your past six months in particular? Well, it's been a very interesting year to start a new business. It's hard uh, for the obvious reasons, but I also think as a new company, there's been a lot of opportunities. Um, most of what... I was trying to accomplish this year was to um, connect the dots between uh, international uh, producers, international IP, and and what's happening with the streamers and and other platforms here in Hollywood. But for the most part, that's that's going to involve a fair chunk of development, no matter what. Um, and so, what I've seen is because the wheels of the world have kind of ground to a halt over the last um, 12 months or so that um, you, you have this opportunity to, to really pick up interesting projects, to develop them and to set them up. And um, over the first year, we've been able to put um, a dozen or so projects into development at the major platforms and in several studios around town as well. I don't know if, it would have been as possible to do that if the world wasn't slowing down a bit and, you know, if there weren't platforms and studios taking their times to understand what their international programming strategy might look like going forward. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you started the business really looking at scripted projects in the main, but you've also working on some unscripted projects now and animation as well in uh, in terms of international co-productions. Yeah, we have a show called Queens, which is an animated history of African queens, which uh, we've, uh, with a great uh, French 
uh, artist named Nicole Kobe um, that we've been able to set up at a major platform, which we can't quite announce yet, um, into development. And um, we also have another project with the same artist called Femme Noir, which is sort of like an animated version of Sex in the City with, with a French African lead that's been set up at, at Viacom and, and BET um, Plus. I, there's a few other animation projects that we're looking at. We, we're, we're in development with a project called uh, Sweet Paprika, which is with an Italian um, uh, comic book uh, uh, creator named Mirka Indolfo, who's really a rising star and has done some of the major characters at DC. And I think adult animation and, and just the ability to think outside of traditional genres like anime and kids animation is really something that's evolved over the last year, partially because it's easier to, to make than, than live action series at this uh, moment in time. And, and partially because the platforms are proving that there's uh, big audiences for them. It must be a boom time for anime and, and adult animation right now. Yeah, I think it is. And you can just see the the level of investment that Netflix and, and others have, have committed to it based on what the audience seems to be telling them that this is that this is an interesting programming strategy for them. Speaking of Netflix, obviously, we know you from your time there for a number of years in, in, in different roles. They just announced a couple of days ago that they're testing a programmed linear content channel in France called Netflix Direct. I mean, is that is that something that's been in the plans for a long time, do you know? Or, I mean, is that something you you think we can we can expect to see rolling out across the world? I can't say because I'm no longer there, but I would say that Netflix has a history of trying out different types of formats and different dis- distribution techniques for the, those formats. And I, I think on a macro level, I think what you're seeing is there's so many choices for content and you see platforms like, say, Pluto TV on Viacom having some success uh, with a, a more programmatic approach that it makes sense to me that they would try it and see if, if it works. Netflix has always been a rather experimental company, and, and I'm sure this is one of dozens of tests that they're doing to, as part of their ongoing strategy. It's a theme that we've talked about a few on a few shows is the digital aspect of the content industry and those industry leaders willing to test and learn and try different things and something that without wanting to hark back to Quibi once again uh, that they may have uh, tried. I thought it was fascinating just the fact that Netflix is now going to be is moving into TV essentially. It's uh, it's going to be for all intents and purposes a TV channel and Potentially, uh, we might see advertising on, uh, on Netflix Direct as well. To me, it seems a little bit unlikely given their value proposition as a subscri- subscription model, but I, who knows? In general, I think there's just lots of different ways to, to program choice. And so uh, one way may be to have a linear channel. Another may be what happens when you finish a show. What, what, what recommendations do you receive? Another may be what does it look like to sample short form content? And I, I think the global platforms, the Amazons, the Apples, the Netflixes, Disney Pluses of the world are all um, probably going to have to try different types of content programming, not just because 
um, to see what what's working here or what's working in Europe, but because they're going to be global platforms and there's just going to be different expectations for services in different parts of the world. So it, I would bet that this that we're entering an era of significant experimentation in terms of uh, programming formats for for all of the platforms. Mm. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see. So now is the time in the show for Story of the Week, where my guests get to highlight the key news stories that's caught their eye in the TV industry this week. Mark, tell us about your Story of the Week. Well, it was a story that related to a a lot of things that uh, I think we're all talking about, which is, are we still going to be making the same number of shows? Um, It gets back to the John Landgraf equation, which is, have we reached peak TV? Are we making too many total scripted shows, not just in the U.S. and the U.K., but worldwide, where the audience just can't digest that many. And in addition to whether we're making too many shows, in the near future, if not the longer-term future, will channels be ordering as many episodes of each season? And and, and so it's really, you know, what does uh, uh, returnable scripted drama look like in the near future and the longer term? Networks have often been accused of stretching their stories thin, right? To you know, stretching yeah. an eight part up to a ten, or or a six to an eight, or whatever. Do you see that a uh, shorter series is uh, going to become the norm? Particularly, obviously, with the uh, production interruptions that we've uh, that we've had over the past few months. Well, near term, absolutely. I think we've already seen. Uh, episodes because of the additional COVID costs um, from broadcasters being uh, cut. So instead of 10, maybe eight, maybe seven, maybe nine, um, a a variety of of scopes to bring things into line. Um, I think going forward, that's the interesting equation is in returnable drama, as opposed to limited series that don't intend to go more than one season. Are we going to see shorter or seasonal orders of those returnable dramas? And I think that's quite possible that people will be trying, uh, as, as, as uh, Eric said, it's a, it's a time for experimentation. So I think we'll see a lot more experimentation. Um, I, I've always wondered whether the old wheel would come back, and it's been tried a few times, but in this current era, like we did in the States, you know, I think uh, there were a number of shows, Columbo and others that came out of it, of uh, a wheel in a certain time slot trying out three, four, five dramas, and the ones that really took traction with the audience were the ones that got reordered and got bigger orders, and the other ones fell by the wayside. A lot of distributors may have been thanking their lucky stars for having a Miss Marple or a Poirot with numbers of seasons with 10 episodes per season. So just having big blocks of content that they could sell to broadcasters with huge gaps in their uh, in their schedules over this pandemic you know maybe they'll be uh, they'll be suggesting that actually you know more and more content with a strong brand returnable content is is the way to go as distributors we would love more episodes and episodes to to bulk up and strip eventually but you know a lot of that was done in years past for the syndication market which has changed significantly so now i think it's about you know having the right shows that broadcasters and platforms around the world want, whether we've got six, eight, 10, uh, 16, 22 episodes. I think what we all want are, are is success in returnable seasons. Obviously, the downside of shorter seasons is going to be an impact on production and also an impact on 
freelance creatives as well. There's going to be essentially lot less work to go around as well. And this winter, we all know that that's it's going to be a very challenging winter for everybody that works in uh, in production in particular. Yeah, I don't know that it foretells. By the way, Justin, I don't know that it foretells less work. I, I just think it means uh, a, a different way of producing. How so? If they're ordering short, we may end up shooting them, as I see a few producers already, shooting those back to back, keeping the crew together. So instead of just one show and out, keeping a lot of the below the line crew, obviously changing uh, a lot of the department heads and the key creatives, but um, keeping the crew, keeping the studios, keeping the offices together and um, uh, working towards economies of scale. Eric, what's your story of the week? I don't know if it's a story, but it's a show. I'm, I'm curious uh, to watch a show from my old uh, company called The Liberator, uh, which is a World War II animated limited series, I believe, that is getting a run on Veterans Day on, on certain military networks here. And to me, it's just, we talked about it earlier, but it's an interesting look into how the scope of animation is changing. Because if you think about uh, doing um, a big, uh, complicated World War II action series in the past, you think that's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but with improved technology and, and a, a kind of the ambition to do a new type of storytelling, that, that feels suddenly more possible to tell a broader range of stories um, through animation than has been than have been told before. Do you think that we're going to see more and more animation coming to longer form content? I mean, uh, we've we've seen the development of uh, incredible development in CGI techniques and uh, in video games, for example. Do you expect us to see more and more of this sort of content in terms of feature length focused at adults? Well, I don't know feature length, but, you know, another show that I just had been admiring was Undone, which was done with Rotoscope on Amazon. And it just seems like there's so much more breadth and depth of animated content than was there before. And so it just feels like the world is opening up to this kind of storytelling, especially on the uh, streaming platforms. So now is the time in the show for my guests to nominate their hero of the week and what or who they want to tell to get in the bin. Mark, who's your hero of the week? Justin, I wish I could follow your directions, but but I couldn't. I have three heroes, but I'm going to make it quick. You're the first guest who's gone for the for the triple hero, so I'm I'm looking okay. forward to this. They're all worthy this week. The first Good. is Marcus Rashford, who is the uh, UK Premier League football player who got the government and Boris Johnson for the second time to yes. overturn their decision not to fund free school lunches for uh, disadvantaged kids over the holidays. Seems like a natural one, yeah. but he fought hard for it and he won. The second one is the U.S. election poll workers on both sides. They all maintained our democratic elections, and I think uh, it'll be seen that they did their job extremely well in really diff difficult circumstances, and uh, the election stands. And the last is because I do get around and see how hard the below the line crews are working on all of our shows and everyone else's. It's hard enough to do a 12, 13 hour day with transportation to and from where you're staying. And COVID and the COVID protocols just add to that time and that anxiety. 
And those are the people, in addition to the great creatives and directors and actors in front of the camera and behind, those are the folks who've got our, 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 our industry back working. So those are my heroes. And all three very worthy, as you say. Now, Mar- Marcus Rashford, despite him playing for Manchester United, indeed, is only 23 years old. And so he's, he's twice changed government policy. He's a remarkable young man. You know, I can't wait to see how things develop. I mean, hopefully it's just a shame that his campaigning is actually needed in the first place. But yeah, he's, it's been a, a, a remarkable development uh, over the last few months for, for him. Eric, who's your hero of the week? Uh, well, first of all, on the, on the football front, I'm a fan of, of Roma. And so it's constant heartbreak for me. And, and um, I, don't, I don't have as, as much joy behind football as, as you two might. Uh, my hero is a little maybe less noble in some ways, but it's it's the producers or creators of The Queen's Gambit, which is a show that I've finished in two sittings this week. I think that Scott Frank and Alan Scott. And to me, what's extraordinary about this is that you have a game uh, that chess, which few people understand, you had an opening episode that doesn't f- really feature the, the lead act at all, um, except in a quick flash forward. And um, it's an incredibly depressing childhood story of this orphan who's kind of forced into chess as a way of escaping her life. And yet somehow um, it's become extraordinarily popular and um, you completely feel for this character all the way through. So I just think uh in in this year of darkness, it's amazing to see great TV like that. And it was truly inspiring. I think one of the best things I've seen all year. Yeah. Well, it came to my attention when Stephen King, the author, tweeted about it. And he was saying it's the best thing he's seen all year. It's trending as number one, according to uh, Netflix's algorithm in the UK. So it's doing incredibly well. It's on my uh, watch list, but I haven't made it uh, yet. Again, we'll we'll uh, we'll post a link to that in the uh, in the episode description. And Eric, who or what's going in the bin for you? Um, I mean, it's a little predictable because last week, as an American, we were glued to our TVs for the election, and I have to say that we're at a place where the networks are so divided and so. Um, pushing uh, narratives uh, between Fox News and MSNBC that uh, centrist viewers are kind of ping-ponging back and forth between um, the whole thing, instead of being sort of a celebration of democracy, just felt like uh, um, innervating on some level. And um, uh, not a single people person that I talked to this week felt like uh, joy or uh, sort of that this was a great process. It was more just fatigue. Um, so there, there has to be a better way, not only for the election process here, but uh, how the, the elections are covered um, by the media. We're waiting to be told who's actually won. And, and it is down to the networks, isn't it? The networks that call it almost seems to confirm the result. Seems quite strange that there isn't an official governmental or, or, or institutional body that says, yep, this guy or this uh, this lady has actually won and they're the president. We we wait to find out whether, you know, Fox calls it or the BBC called it. It has been an extraordinary uh, week and uh, and I think it might continue to be for a few days yet. 
Yeah. And, you know, there is a formal process by which the elections are settled. It just happens to take weeks to certify. And I don't, I'm not a political expert, so I don't have the answers, but that wasn't a lot of fun to sit glued in front of your television for 10 hours a day trying to sift through it all. Do you think that the news networks showed more restraint than they may usually because of what uh, what Donald Trump was saying all the way through, obviously casting doubt upon the legitimacy of the ballot in various various places? Do you think that the news networks may have called it earlier had it not been for this sort of fairly febrile atmosphere that uh, that Trump has caused? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it was also the the COVID of it all um, dictated uh, that there was going to be many, many more mail-in ballots. And um, so there's just a lot of variables um, in that process that were unique. Um, and then you have the rise of all the social media platforms where I feel like it's really been magnified versus even four, four years ago. So you have the ability for people to talk directly to the citizens. And then you have the networks who may be, may or may not be gun shy, but the combination of all those things doesn't seem to be functional or healthy long-term. It's certainly been a fascinating week. Mark, who's going in your bin? It relates to this, but um, indeed, it has been an interesting week. And let me say, you know, I, I, one of the most joyous nights I've had in months was Saturday night. And as an American who's long lived in London, when it was announced, there were horns, there were fireworks. It wasn't just for Guy Fawkes Day the day before. Um, people were genuinely happy. And I've heard from my friends and contacts and colleagues around the world. And people were happy for for America and, and happy for what it um, hopefully portends for the rest of the world. So my villain is maybe an easy one. It's, it's, it's a case of, oh, how the mighty have fallen. My villain is Rudy Giuliani. Uh, between uh, the new Borat movie and then on Saturday, standing at the uh, Four Seasons Lawn and Garden Center, not the Four Seasons <laughs> Hotel, outside of Philadelphia, right next door to a porno bookshop. <laughs> um, that's when you know uh, you've really jumped the shark and your career is probably at rock bottom. And I say goodbye and good, ri- good riddance, Mayor Rudy. Yeah. I mean, at Extra, what's happened to Rudy Giuliani? I mean, uh, I've, uh, being a, a Brit and looking over to America, I mean, in the years gone by, he was, you know, he was an incredibly effective mayor of New York City, wasn't he, for for a number of years and i think that i you know he seemed to have um you know it was it was viewed with a lot of esteem and uh, and and respect i was in new york living and in school at the time he was a powerful prosecutor who helped to bring down uh the mafia as we knew it at the time in in new york which was an achievement and he was elected mayor and you know he did some wonderful things he took a hard stand on crime which was not always uh uh, 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 rightful to minorities and other people in New York, but he did bring New York back to a place and he had the world's attention after 9-11. And yet this man, morally, politically, has just fallen so far that it's uh, it, it would be comical if it wasn't so sad, but it's both. And so I, I wish him well at the Law and Order campaign. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, that's, that's about where I think he is. And uh, 
uh, his attempts, the saddest was, I, I think it's just been reported, there was somebody who he claimed had seen voter fraud behind him at that uh, press conference at the Four Seasons uh, Lawn and Garden Center, who had, as turned out, is a convicted child sex offender. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rudy, not the lawyer he once was, but alas, that's my villain. I also read that the Garden Center was uh, sandwiched between a crematorium and an adult store. A porn bookshop that's doing huge business right now. Somebody said that's where the uh, Trump presidential library is going to be. <laughs> that's what I heard that they've been inundated with calls. That's everybody asking for Rudy Giuliani over the last few days. You know, it is slightly tragic, but it is quite comical. And uh, yes, Eric, Mark, thank you so much indeed for your time this week. Really enjoyed chatting to you both. Best of luck with uh, your various projects. Who knows? The vaccine may be may be available in the new year. We may be meeting in Cannes before you know it. Let's do it. Thanks for having me, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate your time. Good to hear you, Eric. Yeah, good to hear you too, Mark. So now it's time for the second of our new monthly feature called Movers and Shakers, where we bring you up to date with all the new senior executive hires and fires going on that whole merry-go-round around executives moving in the business. And I'm delighted again to be joined by Television Business International's editor, Richard Middleton. How are you doing, Richard? Very well, thanks, Justin. Yeah, not too bad. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm very good. It's uh, it's it's a month since we last spoke on uh, Movers and Shakers. It's uh, it's gone pretty quickly. How are you? How are you guys uh, going in lockdown two over at TBI? We're doing all right, thank you. Yeah, it's gone very quickly, hasn't it? We've had MIPCO in between uh, and all the deals that have gone down there. Um, but we've been, yeah, we've been busy working on all of our uh, content as always, of course. We've been, with everyone locked down in the UK at least, we've been doing lots of um, sort of video interviews. We've been preparing, recording quite a few uh, fireside chats, as we call them. So these are interviews where we get execs all over the world and, and chat to them in a sort of one-on-one -on -one manner. Um, so they, we've been preparing quite a a few of them we've got a few of them coming up uh, with execs from around the world uh, we've got the next installment of our tbi buyers guide as well of course updated uh, and looking as sparkling as ever for publishing around atf um, so if you're interested in that take a look at the site um, it's beautifully designed and lots of uh, lots of great shows in there and then we've also been preparing our content innovation awards um, these normally take place in can of course on the sunday before mipcom uh, in any other year but this time we're moving it all online uh, we're going to do it in the next couple of weeks uh, yeah very uh, exciting and hopefully entertaining and engaging at the same time i'm excited richard because we're <laughs> uh, we're uh, we're in the running yeah uh, <laughs> is, is in the running for an award so we're looking at this whole restructuring that's been going on over the last four weeks. And there's been no shortage of stories, right? I mean, the, it seems like the industry is really focusing on streaming and changing the nature of their businesses as, as a result. I think that's fair. I think if there's one thing to have come out of this uh, this very uh, um, unpredictable and unsure summer that we've just uh, experienced, it is the fact that the US studios especially have been completely transforming their business models and streaming is at the very centre of it. And you've got companies like Disney um, completely shifting their execs around, getting rid of people. 
uh, and and yeah, it's all about direct to consumer and making sure that you've got the right execs in place in the right parts of the world and the structure to be able to roll out uh, that direct to, to consumer uh, product. We we saw. One of us, UK and Ireland chief, Josh Berger, exit. Now, on one level, he's been there for 30 odd years, so perhaps it isn't a huge surprise, but it's more about sort of probably the backstory of what's going on with Warner Media. Um, Warner Bros, uh, as, as part of Warner Media, has been completely uh, reshuffling its, its structure. Um, they've unveiled a vast restructuring this summer, partly in a bid to, to probably deal with the fallout from COVID-19, but also, uh, as we're discussing, as part of its refocusing on, on streaming. Uh, the company, Warner Media, is owned by AT&T, and AT&T has previously said that they're looking to cut costs by as much as 20%. So that means, I mean, that's thousands of jobs. Um and, and as part of this sort of restructuring and this this refocusing on on direct street direct consumer um, and streaming, uh, Berger has has left, um, and po- he's being replaced by Polly Cochrane, who was most recently EVP and Group Marketing Director uh, for Warner Bros UK and Ireland. She's now becoming Country Manager for those territories. Um, but again, it's worth sort of looking at sort of who she reports into and how this structure is going to work. So she's reporting into Priya Dogra, who was recently announced as head of Warner Media, EMEA and Asia uh, outside of China. Um, so without sort of getting too technical and, and structural about it, it is very much... You know, we can see how, how Warner Media is putting all these part, uh, these pieces in place so that it will be able to get probably HBO Max rolled out. You know, over the next couple of years, I think this this is the way that the market is definitely moving, um, and and mm-hmm. we're really seeing yeah this this focus on on making sure that the teams are in place um, to 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 get these these streamers uh, yeah ready to go as soon as possible. I mean, Berger's been with the he's been with the studio for as I say, three decades, more than three decades, started out uh, the international TV arm of Laurie Martelli Pictures, which was bought by Warner Bros back in 1989. And he's had a uh, yeah an incredible career um, when you look at sort of all the things he's done. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, yeah, how things develop over at Warner Bros in the UK and, and Ireland and Spain over the next uh, couple of weeks, couple of months, and, and especially uh, into 2021 when we're probably going to see HBO Max come to the fore a bit more. Another week, another major Banerjee announcement around their hires. Indeed, yeah, Banerjee, yeah, the, uh, the obviously the merger with Endemol Shine, um, which was completed uh, earlier this year, I think it was. Um, they it's, it hasn't gone under the under the radar, but it's certainly most of it has been uh, completed. Was journalists uh, such as myself have been, you know, stuck at home or, or stuck at least in their countries and unable to speak uh, quite so freely to the to the new normal context. So. There hasn't been probably quite the focus on on Banerjee's restructuring as as Endemol and Shine got when those two companies came together uh, five years ago. But this yeah this latest change sees um, it affects basically it's, it's creative networks arm. Um, so we've got James Townley and Lucas Green who have been promoted to jointly lead uh, this central content team. Uh, this I mean this is pretty pivotal to the business um green is he's well you know lucas green's been around for a long time everybody or lots of people in the industry know him um very nice chap he's going to become global head of content operations uh, and he's going to take the helm of, of brands uh, and ip in the format catalog so obviously for for Banerjee, this is a huge role uh, especially with the, the you know the raft of shows that they've got on the slate you know you've got master chef big brother survivor to name but three uh, it's a massive slate massive job uh, 
and making sure that all of those uh, you know those formats sort of make their money will be under his remit. Um, so he's going to be working on recommissions, reboots, um, and returnability. Townley, he is becoming global head of content development. Um, so he's going to be driving the development and creation of original unscripted IP. Uh, again, I mean, very international outlook. Um, he's going to be yeah, trying to, you know, essentially uh, develop and incentivize uh, all, the, all the producers to, to get uh, as much IP into the uh, into the system as pro- as possible, and he's going to be working with Carlotta Rossi Spencer, uh, who is head of format acquisitions, uh, and she's going to continue to lead thirty third party acquisitions for the catalogue uh, and production as well. So it's all change at Banner Jamin that we've had you know, loads of appointments, lots of restructuring, quite a few exits. There's, I think, probably fair to say they've done a pretty good job at sort of you know doing it quite in a fairly uh, short amount of time. Um, the the, the real the last really big job that hasn't been picked up yet is the is who's going to head out Banerjee out in the states. Um, so we shall try and, and get that one for you first at TBI, uh, but I'm sure we'll see it emerge, yeah, fairly soon. Unusual, isn't it, to have two executives working together as sort of jointly leading such a key business? But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, one heading development and the other really just overseeing those huge the biggest brands in tv yeah exactly and i think i mean there comes a point as well with uh, with with a, a company with the you know the, the catalog that banerjee has got you yeah you, you have to sort of you know you have to try and keep your talent on board and both um, james and lucas you know they've been around for quite a while they know how the business works be you know sometimes it makes more sense to keep that that exact talent in place um and and mm. you know as you say making the most of all those uh, those brands that they've got nice to hear that carlotta rossi spencer who's a previous guest on telecast is also part of that new team so well done to her yeah, absolutely. and we also have news from a major name in tv john demol this is a really interesting one. Yeah, John DeMol. I mean, every, if you work in TV, you know John DeMol. And the, even if you don't work in TV, you know John DeMol. His new company, Talpa Entertainment Productions. Um, if you remember, John DeMol obviously you know, created Endemol and, and has been a huge player in the business for, for years. Uh, he split from ITV Studios last year. IT, ITV Studios bought Talpa. DeMol stayed with ITV Studios for several years and then decided against uh, working out his earnout essentially. Um, and he's now launched his own new uh, company. Quite confusingly, it's Talper Entertainment Productions, which is which is separate from uh, Talper ITV Studios. That Talper name, ITV Studios, has, I think it's basically getting retired. Um, but back to the point, <laughs> John DeMol's Talper has hired a former ITV Studios um, exec. So we've got Sebastian Van Barneveld. He's becoming director of international distribution at Talper Entertainment, um, based out of the Netherlands, of course, uh, home of so many great formats. And he's going to have responsibility for global sales. Um, again, when you sort of look through, you know, DeMol's obviously building something here uh, that has got that international outlook. Barnevel, Van Barneveld used to work in distribution for Endemol, uh, worked for Talpa Global, and he was most recently head of licensing uh, for emerging markets at Global Entertainment at, at ITV Studios. Uh, so it's an interesting move uh, for Talpa, very interesting move for Van Barneveld, and it'll be intriguing to see sort of where Demol, you know, where he positions uh, Talpa and how it's going to expand 
Um, there's always been, you know, there's already been a few shows to come out from 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 his new company. Uh, and if there's one thing about John DeMol, you know, it's that he's going to, uh, you know, make his mark on in the industry probably again and again. So, you know, we'll wait and see. And I imagine there'll be a few more hires down the road. Interesting to see a fresh format catalogue from John DeMol being rolled out in the industry. So we, we all uh, we'll look forward to, to that. And we talked on the last Movers and Shakers about changes at BritBox. There's been some more developments in that area as well, hasn't there? There has, yeah. This is yeah, this is an interesting story. So we touched on it last, uh, last month. Um, so BritBox is president and CEO for North America, Sonia Shurman. Uh, she left, I think we talked about that on, on your show, and she left uh, to to a move that we weren't aware of, we didn't know at that time, but she's actually been hired by Amazon um, to oversee its channel business in the US. Now, it's interesting, I've spoken to quite a few people about this, and they all think it's a very smart move. Um, so she's becoming the US head of Amazon's Prime Video channels. Uh, so this is the wow. business that basically, uh, you know, you can you can access sort of stars, Showtime, HBO through uh, through this service. Um, she replaces a chap called Daniel Brown, who'd held the role for the past two years. Uh, and she's a very, I mean, you know, we know she's a very highly rated exec. She did some great things at BritBox. Um, and now, yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of how the US Amazon Prime Video Channels business develops under her. Uh, so we've got that on the one hand, so we're going there. And then replacing her at BritBox, um, we have a lady called um, uh, Emily Powers who she's, I mean, she's a veteran, really, of BritBox. Uh, she was previously SVP and commercial head, um, and now she's taking charge of the North America. She's going to lead in all the commercial relationships, distribution partnerships, uh, marketing, all that type of thing. Uh, and, and, I mean, this is a f- you know, fascinating time for BritBox. We've, obviously, it's backed by BBC Studios and ITV Studios. Uh, ITV Studios especially have made much of the fact that you know, the stream is going to sort of form a fairly central part to their expansion plans and, and therefore, presumably, BBC Studios as well. Um, we've had it roll out into Australia, uh, where we've got content, we've got a, a manager out there who's looking after all the uh, all the originals, um, and they've got quite a healthy, uh, well, a relatively healthy budget for, for for content out in Australia. So it will be interesting to see how that sort of that story develops in terms of the BritBox and, it, and its uh, appetite for expansion and for originals, and how much of its content it wants to take from BBC Studios and ITV Studios catalogues. And how much it wants to uh, to create off its own back. So yeah, we await we await that one with interesting. It'll be interesting to see what Emily does there, um, and and how the BritBox story develops. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to see so many senior leadership positions being filled by women uh, over the stories that we're highlighting this week. Yeah, of course, absolutely. I think I mean yeah, certainly there's you know there's so many fantastic execs out there that. Uh, that are female and and yeah as you say I mean it just it just underlines it from from all the stories that we've had today. Richard thank you so much for coming on the show again and we look forward to the next Movers and Shakers in four weeks time. Take care of yourself and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much Justin pleasure to be here thanks a lot. So now it's time for a new feature on telecast called Wellbeing at Work and I thought with many of us in lockdown gloomy news on employment and and dark nights are now upon us. The concept of well-being in the workplace is something we should be taking a little bit more seriously. So I'm delighted to be joined by career coach, well-being expert and very experienced TV executive, 
Tracy Forsyth to discuss some practical tips on looking after ourselves. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. I'm really happy to be here. So we talk about well-being. What does that mean? What does well-being mean? Well, well-being just means everything to do with your whole body, sort of mind, body, spirit. And what I think about people in the TV industry is that everybody's really fantastically talented and driven and creative, but they are also incredibly hard on themselves. We tend to be in the TV industry very challenge-focused, very achievement-focused, which means that we just go from one thing to the next thing and never really give any of our, our massive achievements the light of day once we've actually pocketed them, if you know what I mean. We're facing very challenging times at the moment, what with uncertainty about what's going on and lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, which can play very heavily on people's minds because, you know, if you're worried about work, if you're worried about finances, it can cause a huge amount of stress and anxiety. For me, well-being, especially for this audience, is really about taking time to stop, check in, understand what's going on internally and figure out what you are needing in the moment because telly people tend to be very as I say very driven and very hard on themselves and probably the last people on the planet to really stop and take care of themselves so for me well-being at work is really about looking after yourself helping yourself to stay resilient and present with what is going on inside you it's particularly difficult at the moment, isn't it? When you get up and it's dark and many of us are going from Zoom to Zoom to Zoom meeting, we turn around and it's actually dark again. And we haven't been out of the house and we've, you know, we're thinking, oh God, you know, I haven't, I haven't even been out now. And, you know, the kids are back from school now. And what if I achieved? And as you say, there's, you know, because we're all deadline driven, a whole load of job insecurity. So, so what what the sort of practical tips that we could consider when thinking about our well-being? Well, I mean, there's so much. So, um, I mean, just on that note about the dark days uh, being here, I mean, I think you've got to try and get outside at least once or twice a day. Whenever there's a bit of sunshine outside, I try and drop whatever I can do and get outside and just get into it. Nights are going to draw in. So I try and rearrange my day so that at least mid-morning or at lunchtime, I can get outside for a walk, especially if it is sunny. You've got to get that vitamin D. The other two tips I have for you there are, if you are prone to that kind of doom and gloom, that seasonal affective disorder, when the dark days come in, is to get yourself one of these little lights that you can put on your desk. I've got Mm. one. It's it's by a, a company called Lumi. It's called Lumi Vitamin L. It's like the size of an iPad. And effectively, it sits on my desk and shines a light at me whilst I'm on my Zoom calls. It's very handy as a kind of lighting tool as well. I really find that that helps me. So because I'm not a one, a big fan of the dark days. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we're not sponsored by Lumi, uh, but we'll uh, we'll put a link in the episode description so uh, everybody can uh, can go and have a look. But it's that's, that's a really good tip. What other sort of tips can we do when we're sat at our desks? We've had such a tumultuous year and a tumultuous week this last week. And, you know, there's so many things that are outside of our control that are troubling us. You know, the economy, health, world politics, the whole shebang, that it's really easy to get overwhelmed and think, well, I can't control any of it. 
I can't control anything. But one thing that you can control, and I want you, well, I'm going to teach you this technique today, is using your breath to help you at times when you are feeling anxious and cannot do anything to control those external factors that are causing the anxiety. Mm. And breath is really, really linked to our emotions. If you think about when we sigh, if we sigh it all out, you know, that's normally because we're either relieved or we're sad or we're exhausted. So breath has a real connection with emotion. And again, you know, if you think about when we're stressed or if you think of if anybody's got children, if they think about their toddlers or or young kids when they're really, really upset, they they sob and their, their breath gets really, really short and shallow, doesn't it? Mm. And if you think about what you do at those times to really calm them down, you normally sort of pick them up and you might stroke their back a little bit just to try and slow that breath down. And often you make a sound like, especially if they're little babies, you might go like, shh, and there's something very calming about that sound. So the, the breath technique I want to teach you all today is something that you can carry with you. You can do it at your desk. You can do it when you're out on that walk. You can do it when you're waiting in line to go into the supermarket. And it's called oceanic breath. And it's called oceanic breath because you mimic the sound of the ocean, the waves going out and the waves coming in. And it is scientifically proved to lower the blood pressure and kick in what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest. So mm. what I want you to do, Justin, and I'm hoping that you're going to play along with me, I is will. just take, take a big, deep inhale through your nose and then sigh it out through your mouth. Okay, with your mouth open. Again, through your nose, inhale through your nose and then sigh it out through your mouth. And this time, you're going to inhale through your nose. But when you sigh it out, I want you to shut your lips, but you're still making that big sigh. OK, so you're still making a bit of noise, the noise of the sigh, but okay. your lips are shut. OK, so here right. we go. Inhale. And then exhale. OK, so you're making a noise on the way in. And imagine that is like the waves of the ocean coming in and the sighing it out but with the lip shut are, is the sound of the ocean going out so the sound is incredibly important because it's that self-soothing sound like you are holding a baby and saying shh, shh, shh. you're doing that for yourself so inhale and exhale so on both ways, inhale and exhale, you're making a sound with your with your nasal, with the air flowing through your nasal passages into your lungs and on the, on the exhale. So really, that is called oceanic breath. And I want you just to do it for five breaths with me. And we're going to slow down our breath and make that sound. And I want you to shut your eyes and focus on that sound. Okay. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Ready? So yep. inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. 
Inhale. And exhale. Okay, so open your eyes. So, Justin, what effect do you feel, if any, from doing those breaths? I actually feel quite slightly lightheaded but in a in a good way you know I mean there is there is you're right it's, it's definitely a calming sensation I have to say that's uh that's a really good one and that's something we should do what every day is it is it just a sort of well, good I, habit to I, get into I, I find that useful anytime I'm feeling anxious or worried and don't necessarily have all the answers you know, and at the moment, a lot of us are feeling anxious and worried, and we don't necessarily have the answers to fix it. And us telly people are very action orientated. We want results, don't we? And we want we want solutions. And unfortunately, we're, we're, a lot of us are in a position where we, there aren't simple solutions. And so it's a, it's important to find a way of calming your anxiety without necessarily being able to solve all the problems that you might have. And that is just a really, really easy one that you can do at any time that you are feeling the need to to just to calm down and to, to sort of center yourself. And yeah. the noise is the noise is really important because it just it just helps the mind have something to focus on other than kind of external factors. So it has a physical benefit in that it it definitely sort of physically calms you down. So you're basically trying to create long, you're lengthening your breath and you're using that internal sound of the ocean going in and out just to calm yourself down. But also I think it, it, it's also a meditative process. If you focus on that sound, it gives you something to focus on rather than, you know, lots of different worries going on. It's a way of finding respite in a world full of emotional turmoil. But I find that, you know, if I'm worried, I sometimes use that breath when I'm out walking, walking my dog. If I've got a lot of things on my mind and and want to kind of work things through, I might just breathe in for four paces and breathe out for the next four paces, but using that oceanic breath. And I find like, you know, gosh, if you do 20 minutes of that on your walk outside in the sunshine, getting your vitamin D, you will feel a whole lot better, I hope. All right. Um, but by the, yeah. So by the time I come back, I find that I've been able to process a lot of things, a lot of things. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, hopefully that will help. Absolutely. Tracy, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Oceanic breath. I hope everybody listening is going to give that a go, uh, whether they're walking the dog or sat at their desk. Tracy, will you come back next week and, and give us another practical exercise to uh, to try? Absolutely. If you'd like to have me, I will be here. That'd be fantastic. Tracy Forsyth, thank you so much for coming on Telecast and uh, we'll speak to you next week. Thank you, Justin. Well, that's it for another week's show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues. We've set up a new networking group for listeners to Telecast called Telecast Community. It's a place to discuss the TV industry issues raised in the show. And we'd also love to hear your suggestions for future show topics and guests. Just search Telecast Community in the group section on LinkedIn and we'll see you there. If you want to hear about our advertising and sponsorship packages, 
please email justin at boomdialogue.com. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers. Until next Thursday, see you in the LinkedIn group and as always, stay safe.